it's Metal Dave along with my co-host Jason McMaster bringing you another episode of the Talk Louder podcast. How's it going, Jace? It's going good. How about you? I'm doing all right. We got a great show for everyone tonight. We're going to talk about a a topic that's been discussed quite a bit, but we're going to bring in some uh, names that aren't always uh, referenced on, on this subject, and that is replacement singers. And uh, I will be leaning on you as the professional singer here in the bunch to uh, to bring in and share some of your insight. But uh, but for, first, before we get to that, uh, what's going on? What are you listening to? Anything got your attention this week? Well, I've uh, I've been busy uh, recording some stuff, and there's there was actually a little bit of a deadline. Uh, not to turn this into a plug or anything, but uh, there's this band from Arkansas, from Little Rock. They're called Wake, but their band is spelled. The band name is spelled R W A K E. It's like it looks like it says R Wake. And wow. I want to say they were on Prosthetic Records for a long time, and they're like this sludgy doom band. Anyway, they have a second band, a si- another project called Dead Bird. Follow, stay with me. So similar type of material, maybe a couple of different dudes in the band or whatever, right? Um, honestly, don't know a whole hell of a lot about either of those bands other than they're really cool people. And I've met a Broken Teeth actually played with them at a bar that they run. Uh, I forget the name of the band. It's called like the Downtown or something like that. Jared might remember. I'm not sure. But anyway, so... Uh, Dead Bird. They have this song called Heyday on one of their records, and it's it's already like a six and a half minute song, doomy sludge kind of stuff. Yeah. Well, they did a mashup of that their song with a Dangerous Toys song. the The song feels like a hammer. Yeah. So there's this 13 and a half minutes song now made up of a Dead Bird song and a Dangerous Toys song tuned down to like C sharp. So it's nice and fat and sludgy in the style of their band. But the catch is they had me sing the lead vocal all the way through the mashup. So I'm singing lead vocals on their song. Then it just morphs into the Dangerous Toys song. So I'm singing this new low tuned heavier version of feels like a hammer and i've been working <laughs> on that and it came out pretty cool and uh so i can't wait that for that to come out. i don't have any news other than how that's gonna when it's gonna uh, you know be available or if we're gonna make a video or you know it's just an it, it just I just call I chalk it up to another COVID project, you know. But it was all their idea. They're super cool guys. They love what I do, and uh, yeah, that's what I've been doing. Pretty fun. Nice, nice. <clears throat> well, I last night I watched a documentary. I don't I don't remember if it was on Netflix or Hulu or Amazon Prime or whatever, but it's simply called The Rainbow. And it's about the famous Rainbow Bar and Grill on the Sunset Strip. <clears throat> and um, it came out in 2019. And uh, for a nerd like me, it was totally interesting. So it kind of talks about the entire history of the establishment, which you know has been around forever. And uh, as part of the story they interview, Lemmy and Ozzy and Gene Simmons and Slash and Lita Ford. And uh, it was kind of funny, uh, the interview segments with Ozzy and Lemmy, they uh, they had subtitles because <laughs> it was really hard to understand them in their in their unique and lovable way. But, uh, and then it uh, interviewed three generations of the owners. Uh, these guys, the family's called the Maglieri family. I'm, I'm probably butchering that name, but, uh, the grandfather started it. Uh, his son took over at some point and now the, the, the grandson is running most of the operations. And so it was a really cool history of this iconic, uh, landmark on sunset strip where all the rock stars and movie stars and whatever hangs out. And like I said, they did some interviews with some pretty cool people, uh, made it interesting. 
interesting side note. Um, I went to Hollywood in the late nineties and I was with my friend buzz and, uh, we went to the rainbow and he ended up losing his wallet or ID card or credit card or all of the above. So the next we're staying at a hotel on the sunset strip. The next morning we called the rainbow and somebody answers and the guy says, yeah, I think I saw it. Uh, why don't you boys come on down and we'll, we'll see what we can do about getting it back to you. So we go knock on the door. This is before business hours, right? So it's like early to mid morning. This guy opens the door, lets us in. He's a gray haired dude, kind of a, he's, I, I don't mean this with any disrespect, but he's kind of the stereotypical Italian mobster looking dude and sounding dude. So I feel nice. like, you know, we're following one of the Sopranos into the, he's leading us through the rainbow. It's dark. There's nobody there. And he takes us into this back room or this upstairs office or whatever and rifles through the lost and found and gives us back our property or whatever. But uh, it was interesting to see him featured in this uh, in this uh, documentary last night because it was many years later that I realized, wow, that was the owner that helped us out. And by all accounts, everyone that's being interviewed in the documentary says what a great guy he was. And uh, so anyway, that kept me there, busy for an hour and a half last night. There's there's proof right there. He, uh, he found your wallet and he didn't auction it off to somebody who was out, was broke and needed to pay their tab. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's kind of how that works. So yeah, let's legendary, legendary. I actually like the food at the Rainbow. The food it, is it got great food. You know what? They, one of the interviews is Steve Riley from uh, Wasp and L.A. Guns, and uh, he actually made that point. He said they start they serve food, and the thing is the food is really good. And, of yeah. course, they're famous for their pizza. But, um, yeah, it was cool. It was, a, it was a great documentary. If you've been there and you're familiar with the, with the place, uh, you'll enjoy it. And if you don't know much about the history of it, it's a pretty uh, comprehensive Look at uh, this iconic place where, you know, all the rock stars, especially Lemmy, hung out and made their second home. <laughs> yep. So we got a lot to talk about today. Uh, we're going to move into our our next uh, segment. And today's topic is replacement singers. It's been debated quite a bit. People have their opinions about some of the big names, and uh, we're probably going to touch on a few of the lesser knowns. But uh, let's jump right in. Uh, replacement singers, Jason, uh, who strikes you as the as the guy that you know did the best job uh, stepping in for his predecessor? Well, we were chatting earlier today, and I realized that um, this is kind of a, a very important subject to me because I'm one of the people that, uh, you know, if you're like, this is an example. If you're a Kiss fan and uh, you don't know that's not Ace Freely up on the stage at a, at a Kiss concert, then I... Then you're not a Kiss fan. <laughs> I almost think less of you, and I shouldn't say that because I don't necessarily <laughs> think less of you just because you think that that's Ace Freely on the stage, and it's obviously, to me, it's not Ace Freely. Um, but, you know, doing a fantastic job. You know, whoever's yeah. wearing the costume is doing a great job. Tommy Thayer is a very, ta very, very talented person. He yeah. could he could he could do anything you would want him to do on the guitar. So, um, yeah. the uh, the the main thing to me would be uh, in this topic replacement singers would be okay if uh, if I'm ACDC and I'm Bon Scott and my record is breaking for the last few a couple of my records are starting to break. I'm gaining footprint in yeah. America being an Australian band and then Bon Scott passes away like complete surprise. I'm still reading Rob Halford's book where he's saying they're on tour with AZDC and they in their tour and they were all drinking buddies and they hug and they go all go home. And four weeks later, Rob says Bon was dead and that shocked 
that world, right? Because yeah. Highway to Hell was only the beginning of the real sort of Americanization of ACDC. Yeah. And they hadn't quite gotten, this is terrible terminology, but they hadn't quite reached uh, soccer mom status. You know what I mean? They hadn't quite <laughs> gotten on uh, the top 40. You know what I mean? Of course, yeah. they're not to their, their hit, their hit, their biggest song at the moment was Highway to Hell. Yeah. So, and I love that because it was a, a throw at uh, Stairway to Heaven. That, that to me was really awesome. That it's the late seventies and the the biggest song on the radio is Stairway to Heaven, and here your your hot new single is called Highway to Hell. I just thought that as a young person <laughs> who was uh, into Led Zeppelin a little bit, heavier into Kiss, but ACDC is like you know I heard Highway to Hell and went backwards, you know. Yeah. The yeah. live album, I got the, you know, uh, If You Want Blood, You Got It. And I just went backwards and completely fell in love with the band. L learning later on that Bond was actually a replacement singer. That's I've got true. Some information, I've got some information about this guy, Dave Evans, who I right. think lives in the DFW area here in Texas. Yes. Dave Evans. Yeah. yeah. And I actually, yeah. I actually really like Dave Evans' singing voice very, very much. And yeah. he actually had a hit record that was on the charts with ACDC back in 73, 74, called Can I Sit Next to You, Girl? That's right. And you can hear this song all over the place. It ended up being on an ACDC record, but the point that I'm trying to make here, I'm talking fast because we have a lot to talk about, uh, <laughs> is that it actually says that in an interview that was just a couple of years ago, I checked this, that Dave Evans said the reason he left ACDC is because he was not getting paid. Moment of silence. <laughs> okay. Who was getting paid at that, little, at that point? You, if he was just would would have just waited a little while longer, <laughs> if he could have held out and still kept his uh, his his job in ACDC, if the brothers would have written, you know, a comparable song to Highway to Hell without the inclusion of Bon Scott and gained footprint in America, Dave, if you just waited a little while longer, I think you would have gotten paid. Yeah, yeah. And I'm not making it's not it's not disrespect to Dave Evans whatsoever. I'm just saying that that's the reason he gives for leaving ACDC. I've heard other reasons why, but that yeah, gets, I was going to say yeah, that gets long winded. Um, so so, bon so the point being the point being that Bon Scott was actually a replacement singer himself, correct? And then, of course, then along comes Brian Johnson, and and that's where most people pick up, and most people uh, make the make the connection from the most people make the leap from Bon to to Brian. And uh, obviously, huge, huge success with Brian. Um, but like you said earlier, before we went on, uh, before we hit record, uh, ACDC was in that r rare position where uh, finding another singer wasn't a conscious decision. They they were forced to because Bond just died, you know, and then it was, you know, do we continue? Do we not? Uh, and then they go out and they find Brian Johnson. And of course, the rest is history. But uh, so your thoughts on Brian Johnson. I know you're a huge uh, Bon Scott fan, but uh, did they find the right man for the job? Uh, honestly, I am just as big a Brian Johnson fan as I am a Bon Scott. Now, I probably wouldn't tattoo Brian Johnson on my body, but I have <laughs> a Bon Scott tattoo uh, that, that pairs well with your Angus Young tattoo. Uh, I'll just put that <laughs> yes. out in radio land. But the point, <laughs> the point here is that when Bond dies and then Back in Black comes out and it's not Bond anymore, there are there is this sort of like blurry area as a sort of what I call a fair weathered fan who doesn't even realize that Bond died and they have a new singer. They just think, oh, have you heard ACDC's new record all in the same breath? Like, oh man, I love their Highway to Hell record, but man, this one is really cool. And there's no mention of, hey, they got a new singer or there's no mention of, oh, my God, what are they going to do? Bon Scott died. You know, there was all of that. I remember I remember hearing that Bon Scott died and 
and, and this would have been in, you know, 78 and 79 when, you know, Highway to Hell was so big and it was like totally fresh to me. And I listened to that record every day for about two years and uh, might've been an exaggeration, but not by much. And, yeah. and then getting back and back in black, uh, and, and like really having this AB, this back, you know, back to back listening party on my own of, I couldn't decide which one I liked better. Yeah. And I still mm. can't decide which one I like better. Back in black is such a beast, but there's ama such amazing songs on, you know, going back to power age. And then, and then you, yeah. and then you think highway to hell, which was kind of no wonder they were become a, becoming an American, you know, this new record by this Australian band, blah, blah, blah. Okay. You know, my thoughts on that, I think that, that mega stardom answers that question. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the record sales kind of speak for themselves, don't they? But, um, I thought Brian did a great job uh, filling impossible shoes um, and then the the singing on Back in Black and uh, uh, and for those about to rock. And I've always been a huge fan of Flick of the Switch. Um, I thought he did a great job, put out three great records in a row with uh, a band that, as you said, was on the P right on the cusp of breaking it big in America. And then they just kicked the door off the hinges. And as a singer, I thought he was great, especially back then. Uh, I don't know how he could sing like that. <laughs> and I think time has proven that uh, <laughs> maybe it wasn't such a great idea to come, you know, come across with such an aggressive, raspy voice. But uh, he was a great uh, fit for the band, did great things with him, obviously, and still is today. I think the new album they just put out, Power Up, is a great record as well. So... Hard to argue. I mean, everybody's going to have their preferences. You know, it's the age old thing. Bond versus Brian, uh, Roth versus Hagar, Ozzy versus Dio. Uh, everybody's going to have their opinions, but um, hard to deny that Brian Johnson did a great job. And I like the fact that he's just kind of a blue collar, tough, you know, guy down at the bar sort of dude, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, this I'm realizing right now and, and actually uh, earlier, but I wanted to say it out loud. This, this exact switch over the changing of the guard, this could be a whole other show as well. I mean, yeah. there's so much background trivia and things like that about what was happening. Brian was in a band called Gordy. And by the way, he was already singing exactly like that in Gordy. Yeah. Super yeah, yeah. high. Um, he talks raspy, so he sings raspy because yeah. he talks raspy. And if right. you go back and listen and focus on different notes that he's hitting that are super high, it's high and very clean. It's not high and raspy. It's high and very clean. So he's actually raspier when he's down in his low voice, you know? So yeah. it's interesting. There's lots of technique going on, uh, but I could talk all day about that. Um, I want to jump into one and then and 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 create this palette and then let you take the reins on it. So let's talk about Riot and Guy Speranza uh, into yes. Rhett Forrester. Go. Ten seconds on the clock. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, obviously, Guy Speranza uh, was was an amazing singer. Um, but um, I always thought that Restless Breed with Rhett Forrester on vocals was a really, really great record. And I don't know that it gets the love that I think it deserves. I mean, I realized that it was coming on the heels of uh, Fire Down Under and, you know, the, 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 what is considered the classic Riot uh, catalog. And rightfully so. And I mean, Guy Speranza's... Uh, a tough act to follow, but, uh, I thought Rhett Forrester did a great job and, uh, I reach for restless breed probably as often as I reach for, uh, fire down under. So <clears throat> I thought he did a great job. Uh, I'm glad you're talking about this because, uh, there's a, there's a scenario of a replacement singer that uh, isn't exactly a household name. This is not a 
David Lee Roth transitioning into Sammy Hagar. It's Guy Speranza transitioning into Rhett Forrester. Um, and I'm sure we've got plenty of people listening who know exactly what we're talking about. But, uh, yeah, I give Rhett a lot of credit for stepping in and uh, putting out a great record with Riot. Well, it, he went on to to do to do much more than that, but I think Restless Breed was one that sort of like, you know, checked all the boxes as far as yeah. a sort of follow up to, um, you know, the the incredibly, in my opinion, unmatched record that is Fire Down Under with what would be as close to the original Riot as possible in my eyes. Uh, yeah. That's the riot that I fell in love with. Guy is the singer I fell in love with. But I saw Rhett Forrester with Riot, and he was he fit, and it gave uh, Riot a different pair of balls, you know, yeah. because he had, uh, he was rough and tumble, and he was he looked like a maniac. He just looked like this biker dude was going to kill you, and yeah. I think that he he made Riot a little bit more dangerous. As opposed to yeah. Guy Sprint with his afro and Jordache jeans and cut off yeah. t-shirt. It was a little <laughs> bit more like a you know, New York street kid from the seventies kind of a vibe. Um yeah. you know, like could have maybe been in a scene um in the Warriors, you know, the movie, but yeah. Red Force <laughs> yeah. would have been in the rival gang and they would have won because he was wearing leather and shit. No shirt. <laughs> but I, I, yeah. I, I don't really understand or know the the background as to why the exit of Guy and the entrance of Rhett. I do not know that. Yeah, I don't I wish know that, that either. Yeah, but something obviously happened. Anyway, it was a switch, and I think that they pulled it off. And Riot was this band that was really poised to do a lot, much like ACDC. And I don't think that Riot, just as a band, probably uh, translated much after that. They were never a sort of, uh, in America anyway, they were never sort of a, an arena headliner. They were like cheap trick. They were the ultimate American rock and roll band that was in the middle of the bill or first on the bill. Yeah. Yeah. But in Europe, in Europe, Riot was, is still a phenomenal um, ideal. And uh, our buddy Don Van Stavern from San Antonio is, Mm. it's still uh, uh, in a version of Riot right now that is, you know, sells out large venues in Japan and Europe and plays all the festivals. So, um, hats off. But, but what, what a great, what it is a fantastic, uh, sentence and feeling and, uh, place that you took that when you said the great fire down under, but I really reach for restless breed more often. That means the job got done. Um, I, I'd reach for it at least as often, and that's saying that's saying uh, volumes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay, well, let's talk about an elephant in the room. Let's talk about Paul Diano and Bruce Dickinson coming in, and maybe what you know about reasons why that switch happened. Ten yeah. seconds. <clears throat> Uh, well, I think it's pretty well documented. I mean, uh, Steve, you know, that Iron Maiden is Steve Harris's band and, and he runs a, he runs the ship and especially in those early years was running a pretty tight ship because he was, he was, uh, had a vision for success, you know, and, um, and it's no secret that Paul Diano was a, a bit of a wild guy and, uh, party animal and troublemaker and, all the kinds of things that sooner or later are going to uh, hamstring your band, I guess. Uh, as a fan, as someone, you know, just on the sidelines, I thought Paul Diano was awesome. I think everybody thinks he was awesome on those first couple of Iron Maiden records. He sounded great. He had a cool stage presence. It was kind of, you know, as it's been said, you know, he was kind of a, uh, heavy metal version of a punk rocker. And, um, I thought he was great, but I don't have to do business with him, you know? And, uh, Steve Harris does. And 
decided it was time for a change. And I, so I, I think in, in the end, it was uh, Diano's inability to, to be as committed as Steve and the rest of the band uh, as far as moving forward. Uh, Diano was more likely to stay up all night and party rather than, you know, make it to the next gig on time and be in a good singing voice when he had to be or whatever. That's, that's the, the story that I've heard. And I think it's been documented numerous times. Now, Dickinson, exactly the opposite, right? I mean, there's a guy that's so disciplined, it's almost insane. And, uh, and it's paid off. I mean, I saw him just two years ago in San Antonio. I mean, we're, we're talking, 35 years after getting the gig or something like that. And he's running all over the biggest arena stage you can give him. And he's not running out of breath and he's physical and he's hitting all the notes and he's just a, he's a freak of nature. And by the way, he's doing all that after losing a piece of his tongue to cancer. So, I mean, he's just incredible. So they definitely made a great choice in, in hiring him and uh, my all-time favorite album is The Number of the Beast. So, uh, I, I, you know, I love Diano. I love those first two records. I think they were very important as far as laying the groundwork for what Iron Maiden became. But uh, Bruce obviously took him to new heights that I don't think Diano would have been capable of doing. And certainly not still doing. I mean, like I just said, I, two years ago at the age of what's Bruce in his mid to late sixties now, something like that. He's all over the biggest stage you can give him. I mean, he's as fit as a professional athlete. His voice is in an incredible shape. Uh, so it, it's hard to, it's hard to say Steve Harris made the wrong decision. You know? No, I don't so, yeah. think, uh, I don't, I don't think, thank you, Dave. That was a lot of good, good stuff. I feel like, um, you're not wrong in every way that Bruce Dickinson might be. This is going to sound crass, but as an overachiever, he's kind of this, like, the ultimate guy, right? Yeah. He's flying planes. Yeah. He produces movies. He writes books. He's a fencing he's a champion. Fencer. He's probably a soccer yeah. champion. He's probably a surfing champion, and we just don't know it. He's probably... <laughs> yeah. He's this. Um, He's a gourmet cook. He skydives. Who knows? Keep keep going. So so yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. so to so to give to get yeah. So we have that. So we have this like per perfect over the top uh, monster that's in you know the biggest uh, heavy metal, arguably the biggest heavy metal band in the world um, from England anyway, the biggest English heavy metal band in the world besides Judas Priest probably. Or Black Sabbath, right? There's, there's yeah. quite, there's, he's in the big four of of English heavy metal bands. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so I want to talk. I want to go back to to Paul for a second because you have to start somewhere, and there's a lot of respect for when you're meeting at the pub or you're meeting at school and you're a bunch, you're just a bunch of snot nosed punk kids, or you're meeting on the corners, you know, sneaking smokes and stuff like that and you're just a, a teenager that's what paul diano is he's this bloke he's this kid under the gas lamp wearing a leather jacket and he's got dirty jeans on and boots you know yeah. hey we're looking for a singer hey i'll be your singer you know come on over all right you're our singer boom two records later they're gaining this footprint in america right. next thing Boom, we've got this new singer. Meanwhile, the first two records are happening. Dickinson is in this band called Samson. Yeah. And obviously, he was incubating because it's kind of like it's only a matter of time until Iron Maiden quickly becoming this holy shit of a moment that Bruce Dickinson graduates into that position. I mean, it was probably really easy for Harris to look over there and go, oh, there's Bruce. Look at Bruce. Oh, my God. Well, Paul, you're out. You know, <laughs> I don't know the, 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 the passing of the baton. I don't know how that happened. I don't know the uglies. I don't know the, you know, the sweet parts either. But yeah. 
Uh, Bruce is his own man, does his own thing. He was not really interested in anything that had happened on those first two records. And he does a great job of singing the material on those first two records. Obviously, same answer as the, the Bond Brian, mega stardom says it all. Mega yeah. start immediately mega stardom. I mean, Iron Maiden was the opening band uh, for just a little while. But when Bruce yeah. got a band, that was that was over. It was kind of yeah. like Metallica, you know, <clears throat> rides the stair, you know, jumps up, you know, slowly climbs the stairwell, and they're opening for Ozzy one year, and then they never opened for anyone else ever again. Yeah, yeah, it's same thing. So, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you were saying earlier about uh, Maiden being in the big four of uh, of British metal bands, and and I would argue that internationally speaking, I would say they're number one. I bet if you took yeah. the you know record sales from across the world, they've surpassed Judas Priest. I'd say they even surpassed Black Sabbath. I could be wrong on that, but uh, but they are you know. Arguably, as you stated, uh, neck and neck with Metallica as the most popular, the biggest, most internationally recognized heavy metal band that's out there. I want to mention so another. I want to I want to mention this real quick that in uh, 1993, uh, Dickinson quit Iron Maiden and Blaze Bailey from Wolfsbane came in. Yeah, uh, uh, he was uh, looking. Dickinson was looking to do a uh, solo career for a few years and experiment a little bit. And I'm guessing that uh, the Maiden camp was okay with that. I think that they were actually okay with that. I don't think that it was this anger or coming from somewhere strange. Yeah. Not every band would have been okay with that. Um, I think Adrian Smith uh, went with him to be on those solo records and then they kind of came back together. Uh, personally, I like Blaze Bailey's voice, just for some reason not an Iron Maiden, and I don't know why. He's an English guy. He has he has a good heavy metal voice, but yeah. uh, no, I didn't. I, I I checked out. You know, when Blaze Bailey yeah. was in Maiden, I checked out. Of course, I kind of checked out after like I don't know somewhere in time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's so did I. Show. Here, here we go. <laughs> No, that, but, uh, that's probably unfair, but it's sent, true. My producer sent me that information, so thank you. Also, back to Riot, just because, you know, it doesn't matter. Where we, I can go back. Um, it was also, this is interesting. Did you know that Guy Speranza in, like, 82, when he quit, officially quit Riot, that uh, Scott Ian from Anthrax called him to see if he wanted to be the singer for Anthrax? Anthrax. Can you imagine Guy Speranza and Anthrax? I totally can. I totally can. I can. Because oh of the. God. Yeah, I don't know if I can picture that. Think about Joey Belladonna real quick. Think about that voice. Think about what's going on and what he's doing. I mean, Joey Belladonna could have been in a Journey tribute band. Yeah. Guy Speranza can sing power metal just as good as anybody else. Yeah. One of the kinds of voices that they have is a melodic hard rock singer singing this sort of power metal. Anthrax had a lot of thrash element. Of course, Anthrax is, has a little bit of everything, right? They're what's yeah. different about the big four of American heavy metal bands. They had a little bit more, you know, the, the hip hop thing. They In the 90s, they had a different thing, just like uh, kind of uh, Metallica sort of like change their deal a little bit in the 90s you know just to try new things that's fine but i thought yeah. i thought it was an interesting th interesting fact that uh, according to my fact checker guy speranza got a call from scott ian from anthrax wow that's that's interesting and before, you know it's before anyone really knew who anthrax was that's important right right and uh speaking of anthrax uh let's not forget uh talk about a series of replacement singers you know yes. started yeah. off with neil turbin moved on to joey belladonna moved on to john bush uh arguably one of the most underrated heavy metal singers of all time yep uh 
had a had a guy named Dan Nelson for a minute, and then uh, then they kind of went back and forth between Bush like, and Belladonna again. <laughs> like, like like literally one minute. That guy, yeah, his name is Dan Johnson. He was in Anthrax Nelson. literally one minute. Nelson, thank you. Yeah, literally one minute. It was like the next he was in, and the next day he was out. And here's a question some... for you, though. Yeah. So, so speaking of John Bush, I mean, there's nobody in heavy metal that would argue he is a phenomenal singer. And I thought when he stepped into Anthrax. You know, as much as I love Belladonna, I thought John Bush was the missing piece. I thought he was going to turn that band into the monster that it almost was, but wasn't quite, you know. And uh, I don't know if that makes sense, but I thought, you know, his more aggressive vocal style would be more suitable to the band. And I thought he was going to take them to new places. And he tried. And, the you know, so why why don't you think they had... Uh, greater success with John Bush given his raw talent. I love where you're going this because it makes me think about other things. It makes me think about why did Van Halen sell more records when Hagar was their singer? Yeah. <laughs> See what I'm saying? So, yeah. okay, so you might be on your own or in the uh, minority here that thinks that John Bush was the man for the job in Anthrax. As much as you know me, I'm I'm quite fond of Mr. Bush. Uh, I worship him, but I could do a whole. I could talk about him for hours and hours. But I really think that a lot of people in the industry would rather take Belladonna because Among the Living was arguably a. Uh, it was their master of puppets. It was yeah. their record that that put them in a different place. What happened internally between Anthrax dudes and Joey Belladonna to put him out for a moment? I don't. I don't know the facts. Yeah. Um, that's not really what the show is entirely about that we're doing here. But the fact that a band like Anthrax can have one, two, three, four three, four singers. See, I had to go back because uh, some singers were in and then, then they were out. Um, and they came back, yeah. <laughs> right. But, but the thing is, and that's not, you know, we're not we're not laughing at anthrax. It's just a, a strange world and, and you have to, you got to have a singer and that singer has to be able to propel you to where you're aiming. And yeah. I feel like, uh, I feel like in the, in the industry, uh, Belladonna is the singer for Anthrax, and I've actually heard Bush actually say those words that, you know, I'm not really the singer for Anthrax. Belladonna is the singer for Anthrax. Yeah, yeah. So um, here's one I wanted to bring up, because I think this guy uh, stepped in and filled uh, some pretty big shoes, and I think he's done a phenomenal job, and that would be Kelly Hansen with Foreigner. Um, replacing Lou Graham, who, of course, you know, has one of the most iconic voices on AOR album rock radio in the 1970s, all those huge hits with Foreigner. And uh, and Kelly uh, has stepped in and I've heard some of the recordings that he's done and I've seen some of the live clips, haven't had a chance to see him in concert. But man, he does a great, great job doing all the corner tunes. And uh, I mean, you close your eyes and he sounds like Lou Graham. And Lou Graham's not an easy singer to imitate. So I wanted to get him in on this on this show because uh, I don't think many people, you know, you were talking earlier, like somebody goes, Hey, foreigners play in at the you know the racetrack or the local arena. We're going to go see foreigner, and they have no idea that uh, that Lou Graham was the the former singer. And they get there, and all they want to do is hear the hits, and they hear them, and they hear them sung well, and they go away none the wiser. Well, that's a credit to Kelly. I mean, I think he's done a really really good job uh, handling a catalog of songs that probably shouldn't be touched. And in lesser hands, you know, probably wouldn't be a wise move, but I think he's done a great job with it. 
You're, Do you you're know right. anything about Kelly? Wasn't he in, I'm going to get this wrong, was he in a band called Hurricane? What was the band that he was correct. in? It was, it was Hurricane. Hurricane, okay. And they were a, a Los Angeles band, California band? Yeah, and if I'm, mistaken, if I'm not mistaken, Randy Rhodes' brother was in that band. Um, you, you might be I, right. I think I think so. Um, we'll have to fact check that as well, but uh, I want to say that's correct. But yeah, he was in a band called Hurricane, and uh, they had a little bit of attention, but uh, eventually went nowhere. And he kind of came out of nowhere, or came out of obscurity, to join uh, Foreigner, and they're doing big business, man. And um, I think it's because, first of all, they have timeless songs, but those timeless songs are only as good as the guy singing them, and, uh, and Kelly's done a great job, so I wanted to give props to, to Kelly Hansen. I agree. I, I wanted to jump in here, and uh, uh, let's see. Let's see. Fact Checker here uh, started uh, uh, Hurricanes and said, I met guitarist Robert Sarzo. Oh, Rudy Rudy Sarzo's brother on guitar and uh, bassist Tony Cavasso, Rudy Sarzo and Carlos Cavasso, respectively, a Quiet Riot fan. Uh-huh. So there's your sort of like okay, uh, okay, my bad uh, on the Randy Rhodes thing. No, that's all right. Hanson, I knew uh, there was a, I knew there was a connection to another well-known name. Yeah, but, Hanson um, sang on sang on the uh, sang on some Don Dawkin tracks like backups and harmonies and stuff. He uh, yeah. worked Slash for a while in, in Snake Pit. Uh, some interesting interesting facts there. I wanted to say that when people listen hear Foreigner on the on like on Spotify or uh, any platform, really, I want them to really. Listen and deep listen, uh, and tell ask themselves just as much as do the research on which version of you know urgent or some insert big giant foreigner hit, and tell tell themselves learn who who whose voice they're hearing because uh, the band re-recorded those hit songs and and released. Yep greatest hits and toured upon that greatest hits record yep it re-recorded those with kelly on vocals you're absolutely correct people have no idea it's not lou graham they think they're listening to the original version because they really tried to mirror what's happening and what so when they hear the band live there i mean i don't think the band went and like made the old record label pull stock off the shelf or called the radio stations and management and said, only play the new versions with Kelly. They didn't say that, but right. Right. Same thing. Here you go. I'm going to drop a bomb right here. Journey. Same thing. Yeah. Same thing. Re-recorded all the hits with their new singer. They found on YouTube. Yeah. Yeah. Cause a karaoke singer in like Laos or something like that. He was and, from the Philippines. Yeah, that's it. And uh, and he he was nailing it on video after video clip and they just called him and flew him over and he, he ended up joining the band, which is crazy. Here you go. Yeah. Ripper Owens. Go. Yeah. Yeah. Talk about it. R- Ripper. Uh, well, so Ripper is obviously a great singer he was one that i had a hard time accepting in judas priest because uh i mean there's just no replacing rob halford right um but then again we just got done talking about two guys who stepped in for their predecessors and they're basically carbon copies vocally um so to their credit it it can be done but uh ripper um Great singer. Uh, I just couldn't quite accept him in Judas Priest and and the two albums that uh, he did with Priest. uh, I'm not reaching for them every day, you know. So not to take anything away from Ripper. uh, uh, Great singer. um, Just kind of. Yeah. And just 
just not the guy for the job, in my opinion. You know, and and I was going to talk about, uh, you know, John Karabi with Motley Crue, same way. Um, great singer, uh, just wasn't the guy for that job. And and you know, let's face it. I mean, Vince Neil doesn't have a leg to stand on anymore as far as singing, but he is the voice of Motley Crue, and he's the voice that That's people correct. want to hear, even though they don't hear much of his voice anymore. I want to jump in real quick. Hold that point for a second. So you yeah. got John Bush, Ripper Owens and blaze Bailey, who are like the in-between guys before yeah. the old guy comes back and takes back over. Right. Blaze Bailey is to Dickinson. John Bush is to Belladonna and Ripper Owens is to Rob Halford. Yeah. And so, which brings up the question I was going to ask you earlier, you know, when it comes to replacement singers, what are your thoughts on, do you want the guy to sound exactly like his predecessor? Because there's lots of them, there's a handful of them that have done really good jobs doing just that. And uh, they're making big money out of it and doing big tours and it's serving them very well. Or are you looking for sort of a contrast like when you talk about Dio versus Ozzy or Hagar versus Roth or Dickinson versus Diano where the incoming singer has his own unique uh vocal style and uh and it doesn't mirror that of of his predecessor what are your thoughts on that does it make sense to have a carbon copy or does it make sense to use the opportunity to start a new identity I feel like uh, when Hagar jumped into Van Halen, Hagar already had, he was already Sammy Hagar. So he can be Sammy Hagar in Van Halen all Good the point. time. He doesn't have to change anything. I Good feel point. like where ACDC was with their career with Highway to Hell, they hadn't reached the mega stardom yet. It was okay for them to have Brian, who's, you know, it's blues based. It's blues based right. singing, but it's over the top. It's a nasty vibe. You know, the the innuendos and the cre you know what they're the creepiness that ACDC has and their lyrics continued, but with Brian, it was a different tone. You know, he can't he doesn't really have the tones that Brian Johnson. I mean, I'm sorry that Bon Scott had. Bon Scott was yeah. really bluesy and he almost sounded like Popeye sometimes, you know, he's like a pirate or something, you know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> kind of thing. And Brian didn't really have that. And that's okay because of where ACDC was in their career. Right. Good point. Um, Good so whether point. it's a versus who you like better, that that's not really what you're asking in the question. You're asking the question, why, like, do you, they need to sound like, does Ripper need to sound like Halford? He could, and he did. They found him in a Judas Priest tribute band in Ohio. That's True. how they found him. Yeah. So if they actually said, hey, can you cut that song again and do it Ripper style and not, I mean, he's calling himself Ripper because he didn't want to call himself Tim. His name's Tim. <laughs> so <laughs> I got that too, you know, I get that. But now he's forever known as Ripper and he has a career because he got to be in Judas Priest. And I think that in his own right, he's an amazing singer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Amazing. Yeah. I wanted to say, excuse me, I wanted to say I saw Anthrax with John Bush open for Judas Priest with Ripper Owens. I saw the replacement singer. Tour. <laughs> oh, wow. I, I found myself watching oh. all. I saw myself. I found myself watching all of Anthrax and walking out on Judas Priest. What is wrong with me? Walking out on Judas Priest. <laughs> One of my favorite, you know, bands in the universe and I'm walking out and it was exactly how that, that feeling that you have when you're going, I just want to hug Halford. I want Halford to be right here. I want Halford to be stalking the stage and being Halford. And this, the, I love these songs because of that. This is really good that yeah. I get to see because KK was there. It was the band. It was, well, you know, it was, it was as close to the band as you could get. And yeah. I'm going, guy is kicking ass. I'm talking about Ripper to myself. I'm going, fuck, this guy's amazing. Uh, let's start driving home. <laughs> and, you know, it was, it was like I said, it was like the, the reason I fell in love with the band is not, not because of Ripper and it's not his fault. 
And I would listen to anything Ripper sings because, once again, one of the greatest heavy metal singers in the world, Ripper Owens. But I want Halford as my Judas Priest. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, Here's one that uh, a lot of people might not realize, but uh, a band that I've always loved is Crocus. And uh, you may not know it, but Mark Storacci is not the original lead singer. Um, Storacci stepped in on about album three or four and took over lead vocals from Chris Von Rohr, who is the bass player in Crocus. And, of course, they had all of their international stardom and record sales and fame and all that with Mark Storacci. So, and they're from Switzerland. So a lot of people in America didn't see them on their upward climb. They sort of saw them after they were established with Storacci. So they just assumed Storacci's always been the guy, right? But... Um, Mark didn't show up until the band already had about three albums done. And uh, he just happens to be one of those singers that that I like a lot. He's kind of got that Bon Scott thing. I love those raspy voice singers. Uh, they just sound like they sound like they never intended to be a singer. They're just some guy that got up to the mic and they're just raw and just letting it rage. And obviously there's an art to that, especially if you're going to have a career doing it. Uh, but I always love the guy that just sounds kind of untrained, <laughs> you know, and, and just kind of screeching. And Starachi's that guy. And they and he put out a bunch of great records with Crows. So uh, there's props to Mark Starachi as being a replacement singer. He he's amazing. I actually knew that, but I I tend to forget it because I've never heard uh, Chris Von Rohr sing anything, you know, other yeah. than backup vocal here and there. Um, but I love Mark Storacci, and he actually does sound a little bit trained to me. But he doesn't have, he doesn't come off that way. Like uh, Dickinson sounds trained. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, uh, and actually, once again, you know, the raspy singers, you listen for the notes that he's not raspy on, and it'll trip you out that it's more often than not that he's singing clean, um, just like Brian Johnson, just like Bon Scott. Uh, you know, one, one guy that actually ha- has a little bit, uh, excuse me, of <clears throat> a clean vocal as well is very much could have been an ACDC or many other bands is Dan McCafferty from Nazareth. He would have been the perfect, perfect singer for a lot of bands, especially, but only going by pretty much what Brian Johnson brought to ACDC. Maybe Bon Scott his with his untimely passing you immediately think, well, what kind of singer would you put in ACDC? And it probably wouldn't be those guys who have that nasty cat yowl that these singers have that brought to our attention more so in the early days by Dan McCafferty and then later Brian Johnson. Um, Because Nazareth was already like touring America uh, by the time ACDC was just trying to do their thing. Right. And then Bond dies and Brian Johnson comes in from Gordy. Okay, so Brian Johnson passes away. They immediately. Bond Scott. Scott, Sorry, my bad. Uh, Edit. Brian's still alive. (laughs) Right. Edit. Edit. So Bond Scott passes away. ACDC had just toured with this band from Canada called Moxie. The singer for Moxie uh, and, and Bon Scott were became really good, good friends. And the guys in ACDC loved this guy. And he's he's really good. He reminded me of like a really young, almost like Dave King from Fastway. He reminded me of like a an, a, a seedling of Robert Plant kind of a vibe. Uh, because that first Moxie record is so good and very, it's much like a Dirty Zeppelin record, right? Yeah. Well, they were in ACDC. They may have, you know, in different markets, they may have co-headlined. I don't flip back and forth. But... His name, I don't know his real name, but they called him Buzz. Buzz Sherman. 
That's him. That's him. Yeah. And he 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 was asked by ACDC immediately when Bond passed away. They called that guy, and he wow. didn't feel he what he didn't feel up to it. He said that would be weird. That's my mate. I don't know if I could do that. And he he uh, respectfully declined the uh, yeah. The, and um, you know, there's probably a handful so, of so, other guys. So who's who took over for Buzz Sherman? Mike Renowski, later known as Mike Reno of Loverboy fame. Right. Mike Renowski right. sang on the second and maybe third Moxie albums. And uh, that's a little bit of a tidbit. And that's as far as my Moxie knowledge goes, because you can't you can't. If you start to take the Moxie, the first Moxie record with Buzz on it, if you if you try to take that off my turntable, I'll shoot you. <laughs> and so, a uh, little sidebar here, since you're talking about Moxie and ACDC touring together, um, our listeners may not know this, but you and I are living in in Austin, or you're you're just outside of Austin. I'm in Austin. ACDC's very first North American concert was right here in Austin, opening for Moxie. That's a fact. <clears throat> I think that that was that was at the Armadillo World headquarters. If I'm not yes, wrong. correct. You are you are not wrong. <laughs> yeah, very good. So well, hey, this is, uh, here's one. This is a note. This is a note we almost should end on. So go, Dave. Oh, I was going to ask you uh, not not to prolong this any longer, and we can keep this short, but I think there's another elephant in the room, and, and I'm not talking about Dio versus Ozzy, and I'm not talking about Roth versus Hagar. I'm talking to you as a Queen fan, Adam Lambert, who is now singing for Queen and carrying the torch for Queen, and talk about a guy that does a pretty good job of as good as you could ask for, I guess, as far as emulating uh, Freddie Mercury. And we won't, I won't forget that Paul Rogers was in there in the interim. Uh, but I don't think Paul, they did good business with Paul on the touring circuit because Queen had been out of commission for a while and Paul in his own right was a big name. But I want to talk about Adam Lambert because I think he more closely mirrors Freddie Mercury, and you are a huge Queen fan. So your thoughts on Adam? I think Adam, um, in his own right, is a star, and I think that it's important for Queen to have somebody like that who sort of uh, can sell a ticket in his own right as well as has the chops and the vocal ability to do whatever queen or any queen song in the world ever written uh, would need vocally. Yeah. Uh, um, you're not wrong. I mean, I'm in full agreement with you that he sort of fell in their lap at the perfect time. I, uh, uh, I think Paul Rogers is the singer for bad company. He's the singer yeah. for free. And I think that it was great for him to team up with his buddies in Queen and do a, uh, a series of, you know, stadium to type, you know, uh, shows and, and a tour of that and, um, play bad company songs and free songs. And yeah. he got to sing Queen songs and he got to sing his own material. And it was a big, uh, sort of like, uh, uh, Paul Rogers uh, with Queen playing Bad Company, and hey, while you've got the microphone in your hand, let's play Queen. You know, yeah, <laughs> that would have been awesome. To, I mean, that's a legendary. That's a whole lot of legend going on right there. That's for history books, um, and I believe, just in my opinion, that sort of outshines the fact that uh, not an unknown, but someone like Adam Lambert coming in and and actually continuing the legacy of Queen and doing a bang up job at it is is great. Yeah, yeah. Well, look, we're running long this uh on this segment, so uh let's uh go ahead and do our closing segment. Um our parting shot of rock. And uh I was going to ask you as my parting shot of rock to you Jason what would we find in your record collection that we might not expect maybe a 
a guilty pleasure, if you will, for lack of better term. I I feel like there's not a whole lot of uh, transparency left when you find out that I grew up on Elton John and Queen and things like that. But because I I I love the Bee Gees, you know, I love that kind of uh, sort of like it's more power pop to me. The Bee Gees, uh, you know, were like a candy coated version of the sweet or even cheap trick. And they had the, they didn't like, you know, I recently watched the, uh, the Bee Gees documentary, which was was great. Good. Amazing. uh, They know how to write songs. They wrote songs for people that you wouldn't imagine needed material. I'm talking (laughs) Barbara Streisand and Celine Dion, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. I mean, at one point they had number one, two, three, four, five on the charts at one time, I think. Crazy. Um, I have a greatest hits Bee Gees record that I can't wait to break out since I just watched the documentary. Um yeah. and it's not so much that I think King Diamond sort of got his best stuff from Barry Gibb. And, uh, but but (laughs) that style of singing that way and powerful and high and that, and that head voice turning into a falsetto. Yeah. uh, uh, The falsetto is, uh, is underrated and talk to King Diamond, talk to the Bee Gees. Uh, there's a lot of like old, like, um, it's, 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 uh, Frankie Valley that was the first time I ever heard that, you know, yeah. even before uh, the Bee Gees and be obviously before King Diamond. Yeah. But that sort of singing is really underrated. Uh, speaking from somebody who, when I, when I heard King Diamond, I was going, well, see, this is different than just your power metal singer in the dictionary. The picture you look that you see when you look up power metal singer, it's something that would look and sound like a Rob Halford. Rob Halford's not necessarily using that sort of like cheeky falsetto-y sort of creamy voice that, that King Diamond's actually using that is the same voice as the Bee Gees and uh, Frankie Valley. Yeah. But it's very, very interesting how that translates. And so I just want to, you know, leave everybody to, to think about that. Wow. Um, but I really do uh, think that, um, uh, you know, I need to find my Bee Gees record. Uh, <laughs> if, if that be what you're looking for in your shot of rock. <laughs> well, I would have never made the connection between King Diamond and the Bee Gees, but uh, you make a valid point. Uh, now I will never be able to, uh, as they say, unhear that. So, well, that's okay. That's okay. Yeah, no, no. I, it's, I wanted like I, to. Uh, I wanted to jump in with my my uh, my shot of rock is. Uh, what record uh, could be vinyl or CD or anything that you have in your collection that might have um, what what is uh, a sister to a record that ha- or or it's a record that had a band album cover, like it had an al- original album cover was was like nope psh, can't do that the label pulled it maybe in a certain market uh, examples would be a, a band from your Europe or something releases the same record, rest, I'm sorry, same record domestic in the U.S. and they can't use the art because of the, yep. the beliefs and the and what's accepted in America may not be as open-minded as somebody in Europe. What do you yep. got? I know what you're talking about. Um, off the top of my head, I can't say that I own them. Uh, I'm trying to think of one I actually own, um, but. Absent that coming to mind quickly, I know what you're talking about. Uh, an example would be the Scorpions' "Love Drive" or "Virgin Killer," um, and the whole show. But just wondering if you had anything close by that. Yeah, the, you know, the only thing I can think of that I have, again, off the top of my head. Um, that was controversial as far as the cover art was the first Wasp EP. 
I actually own a copy of the uh, Animal Fuck Like a mm-hmm. Beast uh, EP on Music for Nations. Uh, the flip side is Show No Mercy. Um, and, uh, oh, man, that was good. I mean, it's, it's those were two great songs. And when that first came out, I was blown you know what away. That is? That's good heavy metal. Yeah. That's yeah, what that that's, is. That's not yeah. that's not sleaze rock or cock rock or hair metal or that's yeah. just good heavy metal, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. And Blackie's voice, yeah. uh, Blackie Blackie so, Lawless's voice is just amazing. I mean that that's what makes it metal, you know. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's it's metal music, but it wouldn't be nearly as gnarly without that voice on top oh, of it. Yeah. So, um, well, they're chugging too. I mean, it's, yeah. it's metal it's a, yeah. has every element and you know he says uh i fuck like a beast it's it's that i guess that makes it cock rock there but at the same time <laughs> oh yeah. and the cover but, art is a cod piece with a saw blade going through it yeah so. you know yeah the, the biggest one the biggest one and i guess we had to get going here the biggest one that that really comes to mind that that is controversial and there's probably a bunch maybe the who where they're pissing on something i don't know if anybody yeah. has a problem with that but there's a bunch is appetite for destruction oh yeah 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 of course of course i don't own the original uh the original cover obviously the original cover of course was moved to the inner sleeve um and then was repressed many years later with the original cover that being the robert williams artwork uh with the robot and the the alleged rape scene or whatever um that was the original cover. Yeah, you're right. Um, I don't own that, but uh, yeah, that's every bit as con- I mean, that's about as controversial as you can get as far as an album cover, especially one that went yeah. to be went on to be so widely recognized. Uh, the album that is. But yeah, we we should talk about Wasp some more on a future episode. But I think we need to wrap it up today. Uh, Jason, thank you for sharing your love of the Bee Gees. That's uh, yes. that was that was great. That's exactly what I was looking for. Something we didn't know about you. And uh, I'll catch up with you again soon. To our listeners out there, it's Metal Dave Glessner on behalf of Jason McMaster signing off. Thanks for listening to another episode of Talk Louder. <laughs>